Friends, would you open in your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. I'm going to read the entirety of 1 Samuel 27 and just a few verses in chapter 28. And this is going to be a very dark chapter in the life of David. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, chapter 27. Here now, God's word. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked him, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while that he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you meet with us even in this dark place, in a dark passage? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you allow our hearts to attend themselves to your word and really be changed by it in a deep and impactful way? You can do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, so we ask in confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, you read a chapter like 1 Samuel 27, and you realize that this is a godless chapter. When I say that, I mean that God is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter at all. He's not mentioned by the author of the story, and he's not mentioned on the lips of a single person in this story. It is a godless chapter. Not only is God not mentioned, but you don't have any moral direction. We've already kind of made this point in 1 Samuel again and again, where the author of the story does not jump in where we want him to jump in and say, by the way, this is right, and by the way, this is wrong. And so we're left with an interpreter's dilemma. And I've seen commentators fall on both sides of this dilemma, and that is this, is David doing what is right in this chapter, or is he doing what is wrong? 
Is David following what God wants him to do in this chapter? Is he doing what's right? Should he have left Israel? Should he have moved to the Philistine territory? Was it good for him to live in the south and to attack these people in the south and then to leave a quiche in the dark about what he's doing? Or is David doing what is wrong in this passage? Is he sinning against God? And is this chapter nothing but bloodshed and deceit? You have this dilemma in interpreting it. And I've read commentators on both sides, but I'm going to fall emphatically on the latter. What David does in this passage is wrong. And it is sin. And we're going to understand those reasons in a little bit why we say that. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the movie Deadpool this past weekend. I don't know if you've seen it, if you can admit it in church and raise your hand that you've seen a movie like that. But for those of you who, like me, had no idea who Deadpool was up until this week, and this movie broke all kinds of um, records in the box office, Deadpool is a Marvel comic book character. So um, I haven't seen the movie. I don't intend to see the movie. I'm way too old for comic books. And... um, Watching men in spandex really makes me itchy, and so I can't, I'm not going to see it. But there's a ton of interesting commentary that's arisen around the character of Deadpool, and he's being described as an anti-hero. Now, that's kind of a new comic book term, and anti-hero is blandly defined on comic book websites as a central character in a story who lacks conventional heroic attributes. In other words, we're talking about a sinful superhero. We're talking about a superhero who actually looks a lot like the villains that he fights, which means that the pendulum has fully swung in the Marvel comic book universe for us. I mean, Back at the beginning of the previous century, we had these squeaky clean comic book characters. Men like Superman and Batman and Robin and Captain America. Superman and and Captain America, they used to fight Nazis. And Batman and Robin, in the very beginning of their career, they worked closely with police. And so you had this uh, moralistic fairy tale of these men who always did what was good and right and just. We're tired of that. And I think in a quest, in a desire for something that is gritty and raw and real and transparent and authentic, we've swung in the complete opposite direction to find not the hero, but the anti-hero, someone who will show us a something that's more like ourselves. And so we're kind of caught between these two comic book characters, the Superman and the Deadpool. And we have the good guy who fights bad guys, but then we have the bad guy who fights bad guys. And we have no complex, nuanced choice in between that really reflects reality, especially reality for the life of a believer. Into that uh, comic book melee enters biblical realism. You've got a believer like David who has very high highs and very low lows. He's somebody who, filled by the Holy Spirit, he has these courageous battles. He has this deep, heartfelt worship in the Psalms. And yet, let to himself and to his own flesh, he can descend so quickly into lust and to greed and into a murderous temper. Is David a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, which is he when we read a passage like this? And the answer, the best answer we can come up with is he's a bad guy who's saved by a good God who then turns around and shows us the best and worst of both. 
And that is why David will continue to show us Jesus in two very distinct ways, as a hero and as an anti-hero. David will show us Jesus as a hero because he's a type of Jesus and he becomes a deliverer who wins a kingdom and that reminds us of what Jesus does. But David also shows us Jesus as an anti-hero because he himself, like us, he needs a deliverer who will win a kingdom. It's that second way of showing us Jesus that we're going to see today when we explore a little more deeply David's sin and the grace of God that meets him in his sin. Let's talk about David's sin. I believe that David sins in chapter 27. Now, I'm completely sympathetic with David and where he is in the story right now. We followed him and we see him at wit's end. He's been running. He's been almost killed on several occasions. He's completely at the end of himself and he's been moving his men and his family to safety again and again. But pressure or not, I see David's sin in three distinct ways in chapter 27. And here they are. Number one, David despairs. Now this is interesting what comes out in the Hebrew. Because just last week we were in chapter 26 and we read this incredible statement of faith where David, he sneaks down into Saul's camp. Saul's sleeping. He brings Abishai with him. They're looking at Saul's sleeping body. Abishai says, let's kill Saul. And David says, no, we're not going to put our hand to the Lord's anointed. And then he says this to Abishai, which is a just robust belief in the sovereignty of God. As the Lord lives, the Lord will sweep Saul away. It's God who's going to fight God's battles. I'm not going to grasp at what God is going to give me. He's going to do that. In the very next scene, in verse 1, David says to himself, I will be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. That's the exact same Hebrew word that he used in confidence about Saul being swept away, has now soured in his mind to despair in verse 1. And David really wonders to himself, I've heard the promises of God. What I really am beginning to think is that I will be the one that is swept away. David, he despairs. David, he doubts the promises of God. He doesn't believe God at his word, and he despairs. Well, even worse than that, David murders. We're reading this scene where David, he's been running around in the south of Israel and he realizes this is not going well. And so he goes over to Philistine territory, back to Gath, back to King Achish. And while he's there, he says, will you give me a piece of property? Give me a town that I can live in outside the main city. And so he's given Ziklag. Now, before you get all these warm and fuzzy feelings about the relationship between Achish and David, you need to realize that these men are using each other, right? David comes into enemy territory and he says, I want a territory because he wants to be outside of the watchful gaze of the king. And King Achish, for his part, he's saying, hey, this is a wonderful opportunity. I've got all these pesky enemies to the south of me. And if I put David in a town between me and them, he'll be like a border for me. This is like the president of South Korea giving you a beautiful plot of land on the 38th parallel. This is not exactly the kind of gift that keeps on giving. But David, he takes advantage of this. In verses 8 and 9, he gets to work raiding, and he begins attacking these people who are south of him, and he makes it as far as the tip of Egypt. And really, this passage is very graphic about what David does. When David enters a town... He kills every man and woman, and then he takes all of the livestock and all of the garments. 
Now I'm going to tell you that some interpreters, they read this and they see that David is fighting the Lord's battles. David is conquering. David is advancing the kingdom of God. David is doing what God is going to call him later to do as a king. He's doing all of those things and he's doing what is right. You'll remember back in chapter 15 when we had read about God giving this command to Saul through the prophet Samuel, I want you to completely destroy the Amalekites. That happens in chapter 15. And we learned that terrifying Hebrew word, haram, which means both devote to destruction and dedicate to the Lord. There is a total warfare that can be waged against a people that is God's judgment upon them. And some interpreters, they read this and they say, this is exactly what's happening in our passage. I don't think that's what's happening here, and this is why. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we get the lists of uh, who should be completely devoted to judgment and destruction. We get a list of the rules of warfare, and only one of these people groups of the three that David is fighting is listed there, which means David is kind of operating now in his own initiative. He's not hearing from God, which he had in previous chapters. He's not asking the priest what he should do, which he had in previous chapters. And he's not standing on God's word to do this. He's beginning to advance this by himself. Even if you were to say that he was, was committing to this kind of total warfare, he's obviously not doing that because he keeps the livestock, right? He doesn't destroy the place. He keeps all the goods for himself, which was the very thing that Saul was judged for in chapter 15 when we get that chilling line from the prophet Samuel, what then is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? David, he's committing total warfare, but then he's keeping all of these goods for himself, What David does in this passage is brutal and bloody, even by the standards of his day. If the Amalekites would have heard about this, they would have been shocked by this. And not only does David devastate the communities that he attacks and makes war on, but I imagine for years and years to come, if somebody would have heard about this in one of these southern communities and said to themselves, if this is what it looks like to follow the God of Israel, I want nothing to do with that. That's awful. Not only does David commit this act of murder, but he continues to display a complete wrong picture of who God is. Number three, David lies. He commits these raids and then he brings all these gifts back to Achish. And in verses 10 through 12, when Achish says, this is all wonderful, this is great, where did you get this stuff? David gives him the impression that he's really fighting against Israel and not against Israel's enemies. He's completely deceiving Achish, so much so that Achish begins to trust him implicitly and say, if David's doing war against Israel, he's become a stench to Israel, and he's a person I can trust. Well, the passage says that David does this and does this and does this, and he uh, commits to this for 16 months. And for that amount of time, it looks like it goes well for him until things begin to backfire in the end of our passage. It's like his sin is a noose that just gets tighter and tighter until David becomes so convincing in his dishonesty that when the Philistines go to war, Achish says, David, I want you to come with us and to fight Israel, the very people that you have been anointed king over. David, he's put himself in a very desperate situation. He's lied his way into the inner circle of his enemies, and now he's being turned around on his friends, on the people of Israel. 
One commentator writes, David was so successful at making a fool of Achish that Achish unwittingly would make a traitor of David. We're kind of left in suspense in the beginning of chapter 28. We don't actually get to hear what David's going to do and if he'll lay a hand on an Israelite until we get to chapter 29. But what we're left with, with just the chapter in front of us, is this deep and ugly sin. We see the despair, we see the murder, we see the lying of David, and it is flagrant and it is wicked and it's hard for us to watch. All of that is going to begin to make space to understand the grace and the love of God. Jesus, when he was ministering to a crowd, he was referring to John the Baptist and he said to the crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What were you looking for when you went all the way out there to see John the Baptist? And that question can kind of be turned on us in our series. What are we going out to see when we look at, when we study the life of David? What are we hoping to find when we dig into this character a little bit more? I suspect that all of us half want to be swept off of our feet by a true and brave hero who follows God in all the ways that we fall short. Aren't we always attracted to that kind of vision of a Christian who stands 10 rungs above us on the ladder of sanctification? Isn't that why we enjoy two-dimensional stories like Fox's Book of Martyrs, where we get to see a saint face death with all complete courage, and we're just caught up in that? That's why we talk about saints of old, people who really understood who God was and really followed him. People like the reformers and the Puritans and the Reagan administration. I mean, people people who knew God and followed God. But instead, looking at the person of David is like looking in the mirror. The longer we stare, the more flaws appear. The more wrinkles and blemishes we begin to see the longer we stare and the longer we study. But really, when we see that and when these things come tumbling out, these deep, dark things in David's heart, it makes space for us to understand the marvelous grace of God. John and I right now, we're reading a book on the Apostle Paul, and it has had the great benefit already of forcing us to define terms. I think we throw around words like grace and gospel a lot. We use those words a lot. They just get in our lexicon and they get stuck. Grace-filled, grace-centered, gospel preaching. We use it so much that those terms become a little flat and squishy. They don't really mean what we used to mean before. And this author, John Barclay, he simply demands clarity in speaking about grace. He says, when you're talking about grace, right now I want you to tell me which of these six categories you are speaking of. Are you talking about the giver of the gift, God himself? Or, number two, are you talking about the gift? Or, number three, are you talking about the recipient of the gift? Or are you talking about the timing or the effect or the reciprocity of the gift? When you speak about grace, define your terms and tell us what you are referring to. 1 Samuel 27 is a long, hard look at the recipient, the receiver of God's grace. That is the person of David. He is a test case for what Barclay calls incongruity. 
That is a grace that is applied without regard to the worth of the recipient. Something is coming in grace that is not being matched by the recipient because he is unworthy to receive the very grace that he's getting. Until you and I get honest about ugly, grotesque, addictive, putrid sin in our hearts, then grace is going to lose its traction. Grace unapplied, grace that does not have a recipient, becomes this mushy, cosmic benevolence. It becomes this kind of grandfatherly disposition. It becomes this empathetic mist that we can fall into grace or out of grace depending on the weather, and that is not biblical grace. Nobody in here is talking about generalized grace. We are talking about grace and grace applied. We are watching in shock as God reaches down to a desperate, despairing, murdering, lying man and embraces him in love. That's grace and that is grace applied. And that kind of love is immediately applicable to every single person in this room. When the Apostle Paul, he thinks about this incongruity of grace, he can simply write in Romans 5.20, where grace increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more unworthy we are, the deeper we find sin and patterns of sin creeping into every single aspect of our life, the more we understand that God's grace grows and it grows. That word that Paul used, abounded, that grace abounded all the more, that's the same word that we find in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. When he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish and the disciples, they collect the baskets afterwards, they collect 12 abounding baskets. Paul takes that word abounding and he attaches the Greek prefix super to it. And so you have this like mutt of a word super abounding. And this is the furthest that human language is going to take us when we think about the grace of God. That my sin as great and awful and abiding and addictive and deep and far reaching as it is, is only ever finite because I am finite and it will be matched in the gospel with this inexpressible, superabounding grace of God. That's the gospel. Tim Keller has a great line about this incongruity of grace that we find. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. Wherever we fear that we will be loved based on our loveliness, you and I are going to do a lot of hiding. We're going to hide who we really are and where we really come from and what we do in those dark places. We're going to be the person at a life group who doesn't have anything new to learn or apply to our lives because we don't want to be exposed. We're going to become the type of friend who is always helping other people, but we can never be helped because we never want to express a need. We're going to become the person who confesses sin in vague generalities. We talk about pride and we talk about selfishness, 
because we do not want to get specific about who we are. In short, we don't want to be known because we are absolutely terrified by that. And whatever love and acceptance we get in superficiality is never going to satisfy us because it cannot possibly satisfy us. A godless chapter like 1 Samuel 27 invites us into those very dark places below the surface where I can begin to own my sin that I find there and confess it to God and to other people because I know it is going to be met and matched by the super abundant grace of God. Get a hold of that kind of gospel and it will set you free. Let's pray together. God, we want to be free. Deliver us, we pray, from evil. Remind us that as deep and far-reaching as our sin is, your grace abounds all the more. Would we find in this gospel a God who meets us and loves us, not based on our worthiness, but based completely and solely in your love for us? Would we believe you when you say that? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.